Acts chapter 17 will be the first text that we will look at, uh, and then we'll be, we'll be turning back and forth to several uh, over our time together tonight. I know that I have shared uh, on more than one occasion that one of my favorite kind of shows to watch, cooking shows, and I like just about all kinds, but I particularly like competitive cooking shows. You know, the ones where you get 10 whatever, you know, they could be nobodies, they could be well-known chefs in the, you know, in the culinary world, whoever they are, and they pit them together, and so they're doing challenges, they're cooking, they're being judged, and uh, one's being voted off, and then you have nine left, you know, until you get to a champion. So, uh, I've watched a number of these, and one one of the features that I enjoy watching the most, because all of them have this challenge. At some point along the way, they're going to take all of the contestants, they're going to blindfold them, and they're going to put food in front of them. It could be any kind of food. It could be any kind of ingredient. It may be some kind of fruit. It may be some kind of vegetable. It may be some kind of meat. Maybe it is, it is even an entire dish already prepared, and they are to take a spoonful of it. And the challenge is simple. Identify the ingredients. Blindfold. Now, at first blush, that sounds pretty easy, right? I mean, surely I could tell the difference between a piece of pork and a piece of turkey, right? Surely I could tell the difference if this is an apple or if this is a pear. Or surely I could tell the difference if, you know, this is a pecan or this is a cashew. It is amazing, though. You watch these shows and you will find, in fact, I think I've only seen it twice, where the people being judged got all of the ingredients right. But those who were the best at it, and it's happened almost every time, those who were the best at discerning what kind of food was put in their mouth inevitably went all the way to the end. I think it's probably one of the most important qualities of a good chef. They need to have a good palate. right? That ability to be able to taste stuff. That ability to be able to tell you what stuff should taste like. I I think it's really probably an important part of what they do, especially those who do it professionally. In fact, you and I could probably identify with it on a personal level. Have you ever eaten something that was prepared for you and in your mind thought... Did you mean for it to taste like that? I mean, is, it, is that the way it is supposed to taste? So, chefs have this ability. I've even read they have more taste buds than we do. I don't know if that's true, all right? To me, it kind of sounds made up, but maybe, maybe that's the case. That they have, they have this ability to be able to discern what the food is, what it should taste like, and some of them are so good that they can even look at the ingredients without even putting them together yet. And they can tell you whether or not it's going to be any good. Now, again, sorry for opening up with something about food. Hopefully you all had plenty just a little while ago. But I, I think that's kind of, in my mind anyways, I think about this series on discernment. This is what I hope we do. I hope we develop a theological Biblical, spiritual power. I want you to be able to pick up a book. 
I want you to be able to listen to a sermon, not the whole thing. I want you to be able to stand in a bookstore, there's still a few of those left, or on Amazon, you know, to the, the look in me, set, you know, click on that, that you are able then to maybe read a little bit of an introduction, to look at a table of contents, that you're able to listen to a chunk of a sermon, that you're able to listen to some of the lyrics of a song, that you're able to watch maybe just a few minutes of of a Christian movie or so-called Christian documentary, and that in that kind of exposure, you're able to, to taste it, you're able to tell, you're able to see, you know what, something isn't right here. Or maybe to the other. You're able to read something or listen to something or watch something and say, you know what, I think this is going to be pretty good. This may be something I want to invest more of my time into. To talk about discernment, I think, is to talk about that. It is to develop this spiritual ability to taste what's being handed to you. To tell, is this good? Is it not? Is it true? Is it not? Is it, is it right? Is it not? This, I think, is the goal of developing in spiritual discernment. But again, I'm afraid it is a quality in, in which we can easily be lacking. And so, as we now are in our... I guess it's our third week in this new series, uh, Discernment in a Day of Deception. Up to this point, uh, we've, we've tried to, to do a few things already. It's really a, a sermon series that comes in uh, four parts. Now, don't be misled by that. That doesn't mean four weeks, all right? It is a sermon series of four parts, and the first part is the part that we're in before we even get into developing our spiritual palate before we even get into figuring out what is a good teacher and what is a bad teacher it's important that we define what we're talking about so you know if you look at your notes there there's just a bit of a of of a recap of where we've been so far though it doesn't have all the material in the handouts i've given thus far so if you're new tonight, if this is your first time, if you need the, old, the previous handouts, send me an email. I'll be glad to send them to you. Uh, I'll send them to you with, even with blanks filled in, all right? If you don't want to fill in these blanks, you can send me an email and I'll fill them in for you, okay? So up to this point, we've, we've, we've done a couple of things. One, we've done what I call there on your outline just kind of a basic definition of discernment. And to talk about discernment is to talk about distinguishing and I use the word that I like the best though it is loaded in our culture we want to be discriminating now obviously not in the negative way right not in a racial way or not in a class way or economic way you know what I mean by that what would be the the negative kinds of discrimination but I do want you to be discriminating and what I mean by that is that you and I should be able to discern to be able to discern Make distinctions among options and say good, better, best. Best, awful, really awful, shouldn't even be on the planet. All right, that kind of thing. You should be able to look at these options and be able to discern those different categories. That's what we mean when we talk about discernment. The ability to make distinctions and then make our decisions accordingly. Then we turned our attention into fleshing that out with a biblical definition of discernment. How does the Bible treat discernment? And so we've noted the Bible uses a variety of words. It doesn't just use the word discernment. There's a family of words that are associated with this. 
So words like wisdom, knowledge, understanding, prudence, testing, approving, and then the word discern. These would all these are all found in your text. These are all found in the biblical material. And they help us flesh out then what do we mean in particular when we talk about discernment in spiritual terms. And so last week we then spent the rest of our time walking through discernment in the Old Testament. We looked at Proverbs. We looked at Psalms. And the lion's share of all of the discussion of discernment from the Old Testament is going to run along the track of the, the words wisdom, understanding, and prudence. Mean, meaning I, I need to have the right kind of knowledge that, that I, I, can, I can see what things are, I can see them for what they really are, I can make then right choices and act appropriately. Now keep in mind, all of this, all of this, to do this well, to, to be able to be discerning, requires then that we are using the right measurement for it. So, Psalms was important. Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Both of those Psalms, in essence, tell us the same thing. You and I, our discernment will only go as far as our engagement with the Bible. In other words, if you're the kind of person who says, you know what, only Bible I get is whenever, Pastor, whenever you crack that book, that's it, all right? And if I come to Sunday school, what if they read any Bible, that's it. Well, I'll tell you now, if that's it, that's all of your exposure to the Word then you're never going to be any better at discernment than you are right now. And let me take that a step further. And this is going to be really offensive. All right. If that is your only exposure to the word, then you're not that good at discernment to begin with. I know that's harsh, right? But it's, it's Wednesday night. All right. So I don't know what to tell you, but, but, I, but that, I just can't impress upon this upon you enough. The degree to which I will be discerning is directly related to the amount of time I am in the standard by which I should be making decisions. My discernment is tied to the Word. And and so I want to expose myself to as much of the Bible as I can. And that means reading and studying for myself. That means reading and and listening to uh, those who rightly handle the Word. Uh, that, that, that means that I, I'm spending time with good books and listening to good teachers uh, and, 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 again, just investing as much as I can into this. Because without that, I'm not going to develop a palate. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to know. I'm not going to be able to tell what's going to be my standard. Otherwise, you know what you're left with? Your instinct. Your gut. And let me tell you, your sixth sense is not as good as you think it is. Not naturally. Because it's too corrupted by our flesh. It's too corrupted by sin and by the curse. So I desperately need then heavy injections of the word in order to get this. Alright, so now let's go on to discernment in the New Testament. Discernment in the New Testament. This is new material. And it's there on your outline. So, just like the Old Testament, there are a cluster of words that we use to to then fill out this picture of what what would the New Testament say about being discerning. 
Again, not only do we find the word discern, that's used a handful of times, we find the word test, we find the word approve, we find the word wisdom, we find the word understanding, we find the word knowledge. So, so all of this is also found in the New Testament. I've only given you a sample of uh, the language that is used in the New Testament, uh, but this, I think, should be sufficient. So, uh, considering, consider some of these. Let, we'll just go through them. You'll see that there are some that are printed for you in the notes. Those that aren't, we will turn to them. So the first text that you have there is Matthew 10, 16. So can anybody tell me who is probably speaking Matthew 10, 16? Okay, that's that softball, right, people? All right, you should have gotten that one right. Sunday school answer works here. Okay, yes, it's Jesus. And to give you a little context, Jesus is informing his disciples about their mission. He's going to send them out. He tells them, I'm gonna, uh, you first are going to go to the lost sheep of Israel. So don't, don't go to Gentiles first. Don't go to Samaritans first. It's interesting. He says that specifically. But we know from Romans 1. That the gospel came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, right? So, Jesus' first instruction to his disciples. You're going to go to the lost sheep of Israel. You're going to do miracles among them. You're going to go from town to town. You might even recall some of this. He tells them if you get to a town and they don't receive you, what do you do? Do you remember? Kick the dust off your shoes, right? And move on. He even warns them. He says, you're going to be brought before kings. You're going to be brought before rulers, but don't worry because you're going, to, you're going to have the Spirit. The Spirit then will lead you into all truth. The Spirit will tell you what you need to say, even when confronted by the most powerful men of the day. You're, you're not going to know any fear. You're not going to get tongue-tied. What an amazing promise, by the way, right? Here you're going to be standing, defending your life, and you're not going to be blabbering on and on, right? You're going to know exactly what you need to say, and you're going to speak with boldness. But in the midst of all of that, he says this, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, ju- just for clarity's purposes, the same language shows up then in Acts chapter 20. Paul warns the, the, the elders at Ephesus. He's, he said, I'm going to leave. When I, when I leave, be aware there will be wolves in sheep's clothing who will come in after me and they will try and devour the sheep. So even here, when Jesus says, I'm going to send you out as sheep among the wolves, this isn't just among, uh, say, those those persecutors, right? Those radical pagan unbelievers, whoever that may be. I mean, he's he's saying you're you're going to find very real threats, maybe even from among those who who might look like you. So I'm, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and notice this instruction, therefore, be wise as serpents. And harmless as doves. You know, if there's anybody else but, but Jesus saying that, what would you say? That's a crazy statement, right? You're funny. I know. Would you? What would you think about that? What What a crazy piece of instruction to give. But it's it's Jesus, and in some of your Bibles, it's even in red, right? So it's super duper important, I guess. All right. So, what, what's he saying here? Well, I think his instruction's pretty straightforward. What what, what, is, what is the serpent known for? He's known for being cunning, crafty, capable. But when he combines that, he says, so be wise as serpents, but be as harmless as doves. 
So don't engage in any violence. Don't be duplicitous. Don't be deceitful. Be pure. The, the dove being, you know, the symbol of, of purity, holiness, uh, you know, appropriateness. So that, that's how you want to conduct yourself. But in terms of the way you're engaged with these wolves around you, be cunning. Be, be wise. I think Jesus is encouraging what I would call a radical kind of discernment. Those who would seek to either thwart you or oppose you or come against you or turn you over to the religious leaders. That's what he's going to go on to say after that verse. You need to be prepared. You need, you need to understand what you are facing. Now again, I think Jesus' primary focus here is on the fact they're going to face a lot of pushback and a lot of confrontation and a lot of persecution. But I think his instruction to his disciples, among all of that, to be wise. I I think he's telling them, hone your abilities to think clearly, to be discerning, to know what's right and what's wrong, to be able to lay out options and choose that which is appropriate. All right, now let's go on to the next one. This is the blank to fill in, and you're already there. Acts chapter 17. So if you want to fill in the blank, it's going to be, let's make sure I get this right, Acts 17, 10 through 15. Acts 17, 10 through 15. In terms of context, Paul is on his, the beginning of what's going to be a whirlwind tour through Greece. So he's, he's already crossed over into Greece. He's made his way from Philippi. So he spent some time in jail there, right? Uh, did some baptizing while he was there. And uh, from there, at least they got, you know, got, got some folks saved, got a jailer saved, got his family saved. Uh, so from there then he makes his way then a little bit uh, west and goes to Thessalonica. He's in Thessalonica for three weeks. Uh, and... Uh, The guy who hosts him is almost beaten to death. Paul has to escape at night. And he keeps going. He goes a little bit really southwest. And he hits a town called Berea. And and it's... This is all we hear about this church. It's an interesting little town. Beck and I had an opportunity to, to, to be there. I've been... There, at the spot, and they have the, the Greek Orthodox Church has made this, this beautiful mosaic, right? I mean, just thousands and thousands of those little, those little tiles. And there's a picture there of, of Paul, and there's a group of people standing there listening to him. And it's kind, of, it's kind of a depiction of this, beginning in verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. This is the key. In that, they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. Both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. 
So it's the first time we hear about Berea. It's the last time we hear about Berea. So it's, it's, it's an odd you know, little snippet. But it is a fascinating one. So here Paul goes into the synagogue and what does he find? He finds fair-minded. Some translations use the word noble. These people were noble, meaning they were, they were upright. They were thoughtful. And they received the word preached to them with readiness. But then what did they do? Here Paul is preaching, just to give you the context. Paul would have in some form preached to them Christ crucified, resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. And here's how he would have preached it. He would have used what we call the Old Testament. Maybe Isaiah 53. He was... He, he was uh, Bruised and, and, and he was beaten, right? And it was all for our iniquities. That his chast, our chastisement was laid upon him. Perhaps that is the, the text that he would have used. Maybe it would have been a Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, who knows what all it may have been. But Paul would have taken the Old Testament and would have preached to the folks of Berea, Christ crucified, resurrected, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promise. So what do these guys do? Do they reject Paul? No. Do they say, oh great, we believe you? No. It says, then they searched the scripture to see if these things were so. And then it says, and many of them believed. Many many of them were then converted as a result. Many men and women, and then it says, and not a few Greeks. What a strange way to put it, right? And not a few Greeks. Why, you wouldn't just say, and a lot of Greeks, all right? But that's the way it's it's stated. And and there were even some Gentiles who trust in Christ. And so I, I I think we have a great example, then, of what discernment looks like. And so let me encourage you with this, church. Because I mentioned this maybe last week or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago. Do not... Be impressed with the amount of scripture someone can rattle off on a TV show. Do not be impressed with the number of verses that a preacher can rattle off in the midst of a sermon. The TV show you're watching is highly scripted. These guys are professionals. I spend hours every week on sermons. This is what we do. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't quote Scripture. What I'm saying is, just because somebody starts rattling off verse after verse after verse, don't assume that then they have said something accurate or biblical. Now, maybe they have. Maybe they have. But if they start, and here's here's a sure sign, by the way. We'll get more into this when I lay out the anatomy of a true teacher and the anatomy of a false teacher. But one one of the sure signs, you you, you want a red flag to pop up if I'm listening to you? Then you quote to me snippets of verses. You quote to me phrases drawn out of context. Here's another one. You quote... From the living Bible or the message? Neither one of them are translations. Neither one of them. Neither one of them are the Bible. I want you to hear me here, church. Neither one of them. Now, if you have the new living translation, that is a translation. It's not my favorite, alright? But it is one. The living Bible and the message are not translations. 
They are paraphrases. And it is those men's opinion. But it is not rightly the Word of God. So if I hear people who want to quote those all the time, I'll tell you one source and... Let's just go for it. All right, let me just go ahead and just jump in. All right, you ready? One source that red flags popped up every other page was when I read Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. He claims he quotes thousands of verses, which he does. He quotes thousands of phrases of verses. Out of context, with the vast majority of them being the message, the living Bible, I'm going to pick on the NIV a little bit, but you all know it's okay. It can be fine, but it's it's also not my favorite. But these are the translations that he's using. In other words, it's not like he's saying at the beginning of the book, I'm going to use the New American Standard, and that's going to be every quote that I give. He's hunting through translations to find the one that says what he wants it to say. For example, he will quote the verse. Where there is no vision, the people perish. That's a terrible translation. Because the actual Hebrew word of that verse is, where there is no revelation from God, the people perish. But he makes it to say where there is no vision. And he goes on to say, so if you don't have a vision for your life, then you're going to perish. So that is a violation of how you use the Bible. That's not how we use the Bible. We've got got an entire culture that will say, well, you can't tell me what the Bible says because people make the Bible mean whatever they want it to mean. Yes, they do when they rip it out of context. So when when Paul encourages this church, uh, when when he speaks about these folks, when he preaches to them, and then we have this encouragement about them, in Acts chapter 17, they search the scriptures. So, church, I would just I would beg of you that when you hear people saying what they say, listen, if I say something and you think, hmm, I don't I don't know, you then write that down. You better write that down. You better write that down and you better go to whatever verse or text I say that it came from. And and, and we all are guilty of this, by the way. All of us preachers are guilty of this. Another thing to look out for, if they're only ever saying, well, we know the Bible says, and then, then just quote something without giving you an, an address, right? Without giving you any kind of reference. That should, always, that should also be a, something that makes you say, hmm, okay, that may be right. Maybe he's using that rightly. But, but anyway, but I say all this just to remind us, just because somebody seems to know the Bible, don't forget that next to God himself, the triune God, guess who knows the Bible the best? The devil. Right? So, Bible knowledge is not a test for whether or not the message is accurate. Well, man knows his Bible. Here's my very one. He probably knows the Bible better than you. Alright, well, there's a lot of people that may know it better than me, but that's, that doesn't matter. Can they handle the Bible? Church, I hope you know there's a big distinction here. Can they handle it? Do they know how to use it? Do they know how to rightly teach it? So we want to search the scriptures to see if these things are true. Alright, Romans 12, 2. I put that on here. Though all of you here know everything there is to know about that verse. No, that's not true. Uh, but we've, we've done this. Uh, but just to show you where the word does show up. Do not be conformed to this world. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that word prove, I even noted in the sermon how I think the NIV gets this one right. Because they say test and approve. And I think that gets the sense of the Greek word, meaning Paul Paul is encouraging us to be renewed in the mind so that we can be transformed. That enables me then to see my options, to test, to evaluate, to be discriminating so that then I can approve or by implication disapprove of something. So this, this again, this is what he's getting at. Uh, where, where he says, so proving it, testing and approving. All right, let's go to another one. We're going to turn to this one. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. Philippians 1, and this is the blank in your notes. Philippians 1, 9. We'll back up to verse 8 and we'll read then through verse 11. Uh, This is Paul's introductory prayer to the the church in Philippi. Pretty standard uh, beginning greeting. Paul lays out for the church in Philippi, you know, that that he's he's thankful for them. Again, you read this a lot. I I thank God every time I remember you. You're always in my prayer. Uh, I'm grateful for our fellowship. I have you in my heart. Uh, so So he's speaking of his love for them. And then he says, beginning in verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere, And without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So so this to me is an interesting one. I find it to be a really helpful one. Paul is now being very explicit. In fact, he's saying, this is what I pray for you, church. And and I love how he prefaces it all by saying, I pray that your love may abound. But what, what is the means in which your love would abound? That it would abound in knowledge and all discernment. That you would know truth and that you would be able to test and approve. Uh, That that particular word there, discernment, means the ability to perceive the real nature of something. The ability to perceive the real nature of something. So I, I pray that you would abound with love and then along with this love... What you're doing this is you grow in your knowledge, your understanding, uh, knowing Christ, knowing the realities of the gospel and its bearing on your life. And that then you would be discerning, be able to tell the difference. You'd be able to make distinctions, be discriminating. And I think verse 10 then explains that so that you can approve the things that are excellent. That you can approve that which is excellent. I mean, is that, is that not the, the definition we've largely been working with? That you and I would then be able to tell, yes, yes, this is, this is excellent. This is worthy of my time. This is right in line with God's word. And you'll notice, by the way, Paul then expects that to have an impact. This, this means that you'll then be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. You'll be filled with the fruits of righteousness. 
So Paul ties discernment here then, not just to my ability to know who's a good teacher and not, who should I be listening to, who should I not be listening to, but he's tying it directly to discipleship. He's tying it directly to sanctification. That through this, it makes me what God expects me to be. Faithful uh, in my Christian walk. Alright, we'll stop there. Alright, and next week... Uh, We'll continue in 1 Thessalonians, um, which is the next text there on your notes. And and so then just to let you know, we'll we'll finish up this particular section of this part of the series. And I'm going to lay out for you next week four categories of discernment. Four different categories based on all that we've tried to accumulate uh, through a study of His Word, uh, through Old Testament, New Testament testimonies here. Uh, we will lay out then what are what are four categories for developing discernment, and so that that will help begin to give us a clarity of focus on how uh, how this should work for us. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for gathering your people tonight. We thank you for time and prayer. Uh, we thank you for the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for your Word. Uh, we thank you, God, that it does provide us. Uh, with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And we pray, God, you would continue uh, to give that to us. And may we find ourselves uh, growing in our appetite for your word and in consuming your word, that our minds and hearts are prepared to discern that which is excellent. I thank you for these who come out tonight. What a blessing uh, it, it is. And I pray, God, that each and every person here would know your hand upon them, and that they would know you, you leading them, that you would grant them wisdom, for whatever you have them doing tomorrow, wherever you will direct their steps. God, we pray that as we then go from here, we do so mindful that we are your servants, we are tools in your hands, we are a means to your end, and God, that you would use us then for your glorious purposes that others may see and know Christ. And we ask that you gather your people back together again. We might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.